we'll be looking at Matthew 6, 19 through 24. If you uh, would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's page 811. We are looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he preaches to his disciples about what it's like to experience the kingdom of heaven. What it means to be led by the wisdom of life. A way of life that looks very different from often the way that wisdom looks in the world. Let's now attend to God's word that we might hear his truth together. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but we're talking about money. We're talking about wealth and property this morning, something that Jesus talked about more than any other ethical topic he discussed. This is the second or third time he's talked about money in the Sermon on the Mount, depending on how you count it. Here's the thing about money, just like sex and other things, they're very personal to us. Money touches on our sense of identity, our sense of importance, our health, our safety. And the closer to home it hits, the more likely we are to respond in one of two ways. To first of all, distance ourselves from conviction. To say, okay, but does that apply to me? Because if it's too uncomfortable, we don't want to deal with the ramifications. The other thing for those things that are personal is we can response with shame. Because it's so personal, because it's convicting, we can respond as those without hope. But God's word never offers conviction without comfort. So this morning, let's attend those that need to hear challenges and those that need to hear comfort and ask that our conscience wouldn't be the ultimate guide but the Spirit, the Comforter. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear what your word truly says this morning. And I pray that I would only be a help instead of a hindrance to that. That your word, with the help of your Spirit, would convict and comfort and direct and instruct us. That we would respond aright as your Spirit leads. Lord, help my voice help our ears, help our hearts to hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple weeks ago, I had to search online for a tool to help me clean out my Google Gmail account. I'm bad at
deleting emails that I should delete. I just read them and leave them there. But it's become particularly bad because five days a week, I receive an email from my mortgage company. Five days a week, time to refinance your mortgage. Interest rates are an all-time low. Take hold of the financial freedom afforded to you. Whether it's mortgage companies, whether it's investment companies, financial advisors, as they offer their services and their products over and over again, they offer you financial freedom. They offer you, first of all, relief from debt, living under the control of what we owe to other people. But the message of the financial freedom is when you have enough finances, then you will be free. When you have enough finances, you will be free to take that vacation you've always been planning on going. When you have enough finances, you can pursue that hobby, that dream that's been unfulfilled. When you have enough money, you will be free from worry. You will be free from work, depending on what your definition of freedom is. Jesus, who comes to preach the way of the kingdom to his disciples, he too offers a path to financial freedom. But Jesus' financial freedom is not if you have enough finances, you will be free. But Jesus exposes how our finances can lead to the opposite of freedom. Jesus is offering a path to freedom from the control of our financial, of our material, of our property. Jesus wants our freedom. Jesus' commands about money and what we're looking at this morning are not about taking away, but they are about giving. For what Jesus wants for us is he wants security for us. He wants integrity for us. He wants fidelity from us. We can often think when we come to conversations about what it means to follow Jesus that Jesus wants less for us. But I think as we examine what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us this morning, we will see how much more Jesus wants for us. Jesus starts in these first few verses by talking about God's desire in his kingdom for God's people to experience security. We understand how finances can offer us, can claim to give us security. If you have enough money, then you can buy enough food. If you have enough money, you can buy a house. You can get an alarm system if you need it. You can get access to resources. You can get better, better medical care. You can provide what you need so that you can feel secure. Jesus says there's a better way to experience security. Jesus starts out and says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Do not treasure treasure. What does he say about this treasure? Before I get to that, though, think about this. Before Jesus says, don't treasure your treasure, depending on our background and our perception, we can believe that what Jesus is saying here is about opposition to the world. That Jesus is opposed to material things. When he says, don't treasure things on earth, 
but put your treasure in heaven, it can seem as if God is saying, I don't care about your food. I don't care about your security. I don't care about your comfort. We may be tempted to see this as opposition between the physical and the spiritual. If that's what Jesus is saying, it would be in opposition to what God has been saying and desiring for his people from the beginning. Jesus offered to Abraham a land of inheritance. When Jesus delivered his people from captivity in Egypt, he was sending them to a land flowing with milk and honey. As the prophets spoke of the great day of the Lord to come as God's people were experiencing exile and difficulty, he promised a day when every person would have their own fig tree, the abundance of fruit, and the ability to rest in the shadow of the tree. And Jesus comes and Jesus is preaching good news to the poor. He's preaching the lack of being oppressed. He's saying freedom to the captive. Jesus feeds hungry people. Jesus relieves physical pain. What we have here is not an opposition between the material and the spiritual, but between that which is fading away and that which is truly secure. Jesus says he doesn't want us to store up treasures. He doesn't want us to amass wealth and property and real estate in this world. Why? Because what we would seek to treasure for ourselves here, no matter how hard we try, is not truly secure. He starts by saying, do not lay up your treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust destroy. Most of the property and wealth that someone would have had in this day was, would not primarily have been in coins or cash, but it would have been in their property, would have been in their homes, would have been in their clothing and fabrics and linens and banners and decorations, and would have been in things made from fine metals. Jesus says, if you are storing up these treasures, they are prone to the moth to come in and eat and rust to destroy. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know that, that, that new savings account that you just opened up at your local, your local bank? It has a negative interest rate. Over time, its value will diminish. We are not called to lay up our treasures on earth because we live in a world that is deteriorating. We live in a world that will end one day in destruction. And Jesus says, if all of your time and attention and effort is in storing up treasure here, then one day you won't have it. Not only is it prone to deterioration and destruction, it's open to being deprived from you. You may think you're secure, you have lots of money, you have lots of wealth, until a thief breaks in and steals it. How many people's hopes and dreams for their future retirements were exposed by Ponzi schemes in the recent decades because a thief took their hard-earned income, said, I will invest this for your future, and then when they went to have that money, it was gone. Jesus says, if you are investing in the treasures of this earth, you will not find security and comfort and flourishing. You will end up with deprivation. Instead, put your treasures in heaven. In heaven, 
is where the eternal exists. God is eternal. Heaven in God's presence is where there is no moth, there is no rust, there is no disease to cut our life short before we enjoy that vacation or that retirement fund. It is the realm of the eternal where the effects of sin are not felt. It is the place where no thief can break in because who guards heaven? Who lives in the heavenly home but God? And who is more powerful than God? No one. Jesus is preparing his disciples as they trust in him to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. To trust in him. To express their trust in him by caring for the poor. By spending time in prayer. By fasting. By trusting him even when they are persecuted. By saying it's blessed to be poor. It's blessed to be a peacemaker despite the cost. Why? Because if we are investing in the heavenly kingdom, we are investing something that is truly secure. Not just spiritual well-being, absolutely spiritual well-being, but beyond that, the new heavens and the new earth where our resurrected bodies will not be prone to disease and death. Where our crops will not fail us. Where there will be no enemy to steal our profit. God wants us to enjoy plenty. He wants us to enjoy. But only in the new heavens and the new earth can the gifts that God has, been, has given to us, only in the new heavens and the new earth can they properly and be fully enjoyed. Jesus wants us to experience good things. This is why he says at the end of this section in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice where your treasure is now, there your heart will be. The present investment, the future reality. Now on one hand we can say, well, you know, where our treasure is, this reveals our heart. It reveals our affections. It reveals what we, what we want. <clears throat> but for a Jewish person, the heart is more than the seat of the emotions. It's the very center of who they are. Jesus says, where your treasure is now speaks of your destination. And if you are treasuring the things of this world, if they are what is most important to you, then your heart, your being, will share their same end. Deterioration, destruction, and deprivation. But if your treasure is in heaven what God treasures, then your heart will find the same security, the same safety, the same enjoyment that can only be experienced with God in the world he is making new. It is a glimpse of our eternal destination based on our present priorities. At this point, some of the disciples might be saying, okay, I'm not worried about this because who was prone to follow Jesus at this time? Was it the wealthy people? The people that had lots of money? No. They, they're saying, okay, I'm not worried about storing up treasure for myself on earth. I can barely keep food on my table, clothes on my back. I'm one bad harvest away from going into debt and debtor's prison. Jesus says it's not just a matter of our external situation. It's not just about how much money you have or what you're doing with your money. As Jesus has been saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it's also a heart issue. 
And this is where he turns to verses 22 and 23. What Jesus wants for us is not just our security to enjoy what is good truly, but Jesus wants our integrity. That is the consistency between the external and the internal. We use integrity to speak of wholeness. Structural integrity means, if something has structural integrity, it, does, it means that it doesn't have a strong point over here and a weak point over here upon which the whole thing will end up feeling. It's saying it's consistently strong, it holds together. Our moral or ethical integrity means that we don't just show one side of ourselves to the world and act a different way when no one's looking. We are consistent. And Jesus is saying, when it comes to your finances and your wealth and your property, it's not just an, an, an issue of how much you have or how much you're saving or how much you're buying. It's an issue of how you are looking at the world with regard to wealth and possessions. I'm just going to admit, verses 22 to 23 deal with a lot of imagery, a lot of the ways that the ancient world dealt with things, and some wordplay. So it's a little bit complicated, but I hope I can make this clear. Jesus talks about the eye as the lamp of the body. And there's a sense in the ancient world, and, and, and people will, will disagree on this, and it's hard to know. Do they mean that the eye is the lamp of the body in terms of we see what's out there and it shines into our bodies? Or are our eyes, as we sometimes say, the windows of the soul, they shine out to reveal what's internal? There's good arguments for both principles, but, but what we do see, what we can't confidently say from the text is, Jesus is saying what we do with our outlook, what we do with our eyes, says something about the internal. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? What is Jesus saying there? Well, this word that's translated for us, healthy, if your eye is healthy, it can also mean whole. It can also mean constant. It can mean simple, and it can mean generous. In one sense, it's saying, if your eye is content, if you look at the world and see the world as it is, if you are looking for opportunities to give rather than to take, it is an expression of an inward health. We better understand it by the contrast. It says, but if your eye is bad, or if your eye is evil, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Jews in the ancient world talked about giving the evil eye. If you have the evil eye, what is the evil eye? It is the seeking of ill for others because you are jealous. Because you are covetous. Because you want what they have. Jesus is saying, you might not be storing up riches. You might not have a huge bank account. You might not be trying to drive around in a Rolls Royce. But you can have little and be looking at the world with discontent, with jealousy, and it shows your heart. Jesus isn't just interested in the amount we have, but our heart's disposition towards our lot in life. We might have a lot, but our eyes might be healthy, we might be generous, we might not be looking to gain, but looking to use what we have, and our body can be full of light. Jesus says, I don't want 
pure performance on the outside. I don't want you to just take a vow of poverty because you think in and of itself a vow of poverty or a lack of money will be your salvation. You can have nothing and be discontent and bitter and angry and looking at the world with anger and that shows your heart and I don't want that for you. Because it means that our hearts are full of darkness and how great is that darkness. This is consistent with what Jesus has been talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount. Not just don't say, don't kill your brother, but if you're angry in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of the same evil. Don't just give to the poor, but give to the poor in a way that doesn't celebrate your goodness, but purely is driven by compassion for the poor. Jesus wants integrity for us. To not just have us free of slavery to money externally, but to have our hearts free of the discontent and bitterness that we can find. It asks us to consider what do we put before our actual eyes and our mind's eyes. Do we flip through catalogs when we don't need something, tempting our desire for something? Do we go to the local car lot, not because we're seeking to purchase a car, but we begin to imagine how much cooler, how much more enjoyable life would be if I had that new truck or I had that new sports car. Or we endlessly scroll through Instagram thinking how much happier we would be if we had that home, if we had that fashion, if we had that lifestyle. Regardless of how much money is in the bank or what car is in our driveway, Jesus is saying, Know that your hearts are tempted to discontent. Our hearts are tempted to jealousy and covetousness, no matter our financial state. He warns us that there is a fine line between admiring the beauty of something well-made, the craftsmanship of a luxury good, and the turning of that admiration for the beautiful into the fueling of desire and discontent. Jesus says we're prone to self-deception. So Jesus warns us, lest we be encumbered, ensnared to bitterness and envy, rather than the freedom of generosity of heart. Knowing how difficult it is, Jesus gives us yet another illustration, another explanation. Jesus wants not only our security and our integrity between our heart and our circumstances, Jesus also wants our fidelity. Now, on one hand, we could say, okay, these other things seem to be good for us. It's good to be secure. It's good to be consistent in ourselves instead of torn apart by discontent. What about our fidelity? That's, that's giving our faithfulness to God. And yet, who has been the freest per people on the face of this earth apart from Jesus? The freest people who have lived are not the Jeff Bezoses of the world, are not the Mother Teresas of the world. The freest people who walked this earth were Adam and Eve before the fall. Because the, as they walked, they were free to enjoy relationship with God. They were free to do their work without toil. They were free to enjoy all of the produce of the world and be fed and be sated and enjoy. It was 
as they were walking in God's ways that they experienced the most freedom. And Jesus says, if our hearts are given to wealth and our possessions, then our hearts will be divided. We will not be faithful to God, and that is the opposite of freedom. Jesus <coughs> shows us this through a proverb, through a bit of common sense. He starts out in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Just think about your week. Your job, whether you are working in your home, around your home, or go to an office, whatever your work, you, you have a sense of obligation to the things you need to get done. Then there is the sense of obligation to your family members and friends. Maybe there is a sense into which you want to work out and feel better about your body. Then there is the obligations to your neighbors and, and your distant family friends. How, how many of us feel torn apart in so many generations, in so many directions? How many of us feel like we cannot truly give ourselves to any one of those things? That's common knowledge. You can't truly serve one thing if you're serving multiple things. Jesus is using the imagery of a master and a servant. The master is in charge. And the one that submits to the master says, what you want, what you say, when and how you say it is the way it's going to be. But if someone's serving two masters, he's not serving either of the masters. If one is truly serving a master, he has to reject the other master. You can't be at the beck and call of one master while hanging out with the other. Why does Jesus say this? Jesus says this because the deception of money and property is that you can serve two masters. It's to say, well, you can follow Jesus and you can seek your financial well-being. You can follow Jesus and make sure you have the right amount of property and wealth and prosperity to fit in. The, the idea is that only when, when money competes with God is it bad. But Jesus is revealing that the very nature of our possessions in this broken world is to compete with God. Maybe even less so about the nature of our possessions, our wealth, but the nature of our heart's response. Maybe we can think of it in this way. Almost no one in here would say, I believe that money buys happiness. We've heard that long enough. Money doesn't buy happiness. I imagine none of you absolutely think that. But a lot of us implicitly believe that, well, money can help get rid of the problems that keep us from being happy. If, if money will just fix that mortgage, if, if, if that drip in the roof would just stop, if, if, if the check engine light would just go off, then I could be free to follow God. Then I could be free to give myself to prayer. Then I could go to more Bible studies. Then I could share the gospel with more people. Then I could devote my life to Christ. Jesus says we can't serve two masters because mammon, because money, it says you can't. Jesus makes it explicit at the end. He says, you cannot serve God and money. And a, and a lot of uh, translations have the word mammon there. Perhaps you've heard that before. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon really means, on one hand, money. But what happens in Matthew is that 
in the original New Testament. Matthew's writing in Greek, writing in Greek, and then he uses Aramaic, another language. He just uses a term. Instead of using the Greek word for money, he uses mammon. We're not exactly sure why he does that, but perhaps part of it is because mammon has the real sense of money or possessions, but it also has the sense of that which you trust in. And perhaps by using mammon, an unfamiliar term, it personifies it a bit. Because in Jesus talking about masters and serving, he personalizes this. Money isn't something that we just say, well, we're in control of money. We're the people, we're the decision makers, we can be in charge. No, he personifies it as if there is a real will and desire behind money. This isn't the only time scripture does this. If you turn to the book of Revelations later in your own devotions or reading, you come upon Babylon. Revelation 14 and later chapters. And Babylon is described as a woman, in some translations, a harlot, to which the people prostitute themselves. Babylon represents the imperial trade in that day and age, the commercial system to which people sell themselves. As, as one commentator, Dennis Johnson, says, Babylon, the prostitute, represents society's allure of material prosperity and pleasure, seducing the unwary into adultery against the Lord. Put another way, if we are prone to think that we can control money in our own strength, our sense of possessions, apart from our devotion to God, then we are deceiving ourselves. As Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are not wrestling against cryptocurrency or capitalism or Marxism, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, there are spiritual implications. There is the real risk of idolatry not just with golden images, but with the gold in our bank accounts. Just as we can make sex into an idol with power that seems so beyond our grasp to break, so the possession of our souls and our bodies and the decisions we make can be grasped by the evil desires and powers of this world that would turn us away from God to other powers. Now, sometimes this is just really... Uh, it's really subtle. One pastor talks about it this way. This can be reflected just in the way we make decisions. Your, your child comes to you and says, hey, I'd like to buy these tennis shoes. Or, hey, can we have this special dessert? And our response to our children is, no, we can't afford that. No, we can't afford that. Now, that might be true, right? Maybe you can't afford it. But on one hand... Don't we all have things that we probably shouldn't afford that we choose to afford? For Rebecca and me, it's coffee from a nice coffee shop. Whether or not it's the thing that we should be spending on money, we choose to afford that. But when we choose to respond to life's choices with whether or not we can afford it, notice that the controlling factor there is money. The issue that's determining the course of our life and what we have is our finances. It's not, we don't think that's wise. We don't think that's the right priority. We're not sure that that's pleasing to God or not right now. It's subtle. 
But we also do this in churches. What can we afford to do rather than what does God want us to do? We don't have enough money for that when we serve a God who owns the, a cattle on a thousand hills. The God who is the God of generosity that can turn the hearts of the people towards generosity. Jesus says the allure of property, of prosperity, of wealth in this world, the systems that promise it to you, the advertising, the catalogs, all of these things that appear as if you can be in control of them, apart from trust in God, you will serve. You will be mastered by them. And you can't claim to be following God if you're following wealth. In 360 AD, Emperor Julian, the Roman emperor who was not a Christian, wrote to some priests in Galatia, the same city that Paul writes to the church of the Galatians. And Julian is upset because in the last few decades, the last few generations, the worship of the Greek and Roman gods has died off. It's no longer treated seriously. How could these, these gods who have been worshipped for centuries have so little attention and so little devotion? Meanwhile, the Christians are gaining followers day in and day out. He writes this, and note, this is only 35 years after Christianity was made legal. It wasn't the state religion. This is only after it's been made legal. He says, why then do we think that this is sufficient and do not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. He goes on to write, For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar, and the impious Galileans, that's what he calls Christians, and the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. He says, the great power of Zeus, of Dionysus, of Jupiter, of Artemis, it's crumbling. It's falling apart, and these people are turning to, in his eyes, these pagans, these atheists, these Christians, because they have military power because they have great financial wealth no it is their freedom with what God has given them it's the sobriety of their life it's their care for strangers it is their generosity that speaks of their power because their power is in devotion to God rather than devotion of the things of the empire, the money, the wealth, the influence. Julian was seeing in his day and age the power of what Jesus is preaching. You cannot serve God and money. But when we reject serving money as we would reject serving power, as we would reject serving military might, as we would reject the allure of sexuality on our own terms, when we reject these things to follow God alone, then we are truly free. 
And that freedom isn't just a benefit to us. It is compelling to a world enslaved to the power of money. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us not to have less, but to have more in him, to find the freedom that comes from being free of the power spiritual security-wise, the power over our, our emotions of wealth and possessions, to find the power of giving ourselves freely to God, who gives every perfect gift, most importantly, Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, you have given us life and breath. You care for our needs. You give us work. You give us homes. You give us these things. Would we give ourselves to you knowing that we are secure in Christ? Knowing that whether in want or in plenty, we can know the secret of contentment because we are secure in you. And we know that when we say no to what would tempt us, that we can be faithful to you and find true freedom, true flourishing. Help us to walk in wisdom and the freedom that Christ provides. 